Today's very exciting episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. All right, my guest today is Phil Simon. He is an author of many, many books. And in this episode, we're talking about his newest one, The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Shaping the Workplace. And this is a relevant discussion for virtually anybody who's a, a leader in business, uh, whether you own a business, you're a senior leader, you manage people, or you're an HR professional, you're going to get insight into worker engagement and productivity. We're going to talk about burnout in this. We'll talk about the labor market imbalance, the power of artificial intelligence, and we really geek out on that. We talk about blockchain. A lot of people don't know about blockchain and, and how actually many of the things that we're going to touch now and into the future are, are touching blockchain. So this is an eye-opening conversation. You're not going to want to miss this one. Enjoy today's conversation with Phil Simon, the author of The Nine. If you like today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend, share it on social media. We love spreading the word about the show. We're out there to transform workplaces for the better. So thanks for the support. Enjoy the conversation with Phil Simon. Hey, Phil, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Brandon, thanks for having me. We're going to dive into your book, The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Shaping the Workplace. What inspired you with the nine? Like, where did you, how'd you come up with the nine forces? I'm afraid of even numbers. Now, all kidding aside, when ChatGPT broke in November of last year, I recognized that it was a big deal. And I had been thinking about a follow-up book to my previous one, low-code, no-code, citizen developers and the surprising future of business applications. And inflation wasn't going anywhere, worker empowerment. I'd been hearing more and more about fractions. And when chat GPT hit, I'd been also doing some work on a book on um, digital currencies for a client and learning more about blockchain. It just all came together. And I realized that these forces weren't going anywhere. If anything, they were going to intensify. I know that a lot of HR folks and senior execs were struggling with the things that I talk about in the book. And to quote Toni Morrison, I think the book that you want to read doesn't exist, then you have to be the one to write it. So throw in an inability to sleep, fast typing skills, and fundamental enjoyment of the writing process. And voila, book number 14 uh, dropped a couple of um, months ago. These forces, do you think they're going to impact the workplace, like holistically, like the way we run businesses, the employees, and is it in the immediate future? Or is it like the next five, 10 years? Uh, yes, across the board. Yeah, they're here now. I, I can't predict the future. I don't have a Swami hat anytime soon. But I mean, when people talk about inflation, just to pick on that one for a moment, its implications are so broad. You can write books about it, but it's here now. I don't think realistically it's going to revert to 2% anytime soon. In fact, historically, that's been a bit of an anomaly. I believe that over the last 60 years, the mean rate of inflation was close to 4%, 3.78. So we got spoiled with zero or near zero interest rates. And that affected so many things, expansion, commercial real estate, hiring, product development, and overall risk-taking mentality because money was cheap. 
well, what happens when money isn't cheap? And what happens when we've got artificial intelligence and automation tools like robotic process automation? So to me, again, I have no idea what happens a year or two from now, but I would be astonished, Brandon, if we look back a year from now and go, yeah, of those nine forces, I was wrong on seven of them. In fact, if, if anything, I think they're understated because the most enjoyable part of the writing and research process to me was to think about the interrelationships between and among these forces. Right? So when you think about companies maybe wanting to pare back because of inflation, could they make do with less office space? Sure. Remote and hybrid work pretty prevalent these days. Would that also allow people to hire three-fifths of a general counsel or a chief marketing officer? Now, if you're Google or Amazon or Apple, that's anathema, right? It's a multi-trillion dollar company. You need your own full-time CFO or CMO. But what about your three or 400 person company that's growing at 20%? You can't afford to pay $400,000 a year to a chief marketing officer. So just the interrelationships among these forces, I, I just thought was fascinating. So this book, I won't say wrote itself, but it was really enjoyable thinking about how these forces would collide. And I struggled with a lot of the adjectives in the subtitle, but when I came across tectonic, I thought that's perfect because as I argue in the book, the workplace is really shaking underneath its feet and it won't revert to its pre-pandemic state. That just isn't happening. What I love about the way you wrote this book is that it's like, it's high level enough, but it's, it's like simple enough to understand about these forces where you could go, you could write a book on every single one of these forces. And in fact, I think you even invite people like, Hey, if you want to learn more about blockchain, here are some great books to go do so. Because you're just saying like, let's think critically about these nine things that are popping up right now that may shape the way the future of how we work, the way we run our businesses and, and all that. And it's, it would be impossible to go so deep in any of these areas. But I, I do want to cover several of these forces because I think they're really important and will will shape the way we work for sure. You start out the book by writing about employee engagement. You said that worker drive is waning. What are you seeing? I am fascinated by the fact that we used to have our personal lives revolve around our work lives. And when COVID hit, things just inverted. And we don't want to give that up. If you look at particularly the United States, our labor law is very employer friendly. You can say that's a good thing, that's a bad thing. I'm saying neither, I'm just saying it is. If you look at labor laws in relation to Canada or France or other industrialized countries, I think the US is only one of three that does not offer paid family leave. Certainly companies like Microsoft and Google, Netflix, do offer that above the law, but they're not required to do that. So engagement when we were working remotely yeah, it might have been stressful figuring out Zoom and maybe getting more messages. In fact, Microsoft did some research and discovered that there was a second shift. So white collar workers would stop working around five or six to have dinner, be with their kids, whatever. But then they'd go back on around eight or nine o'clock at night. So they're actually more productive. But I just read recently, I think it was on LinkedIn, that worker engagement has been increasing. And it's tough to isolate cause and effect because you'd have to do a proper experiment. But one of the hypotheses out there is that it's because people have rebalanced and now they can pick up their kid from soccer. They're not getting home at eight o'clock at night. They're not dealing with a two hour commute. So I am fascinated to see how all this plays out because if in fact companies like Twitter with Musk mandate a return to work and he's not alone, will that cause workers to be less engaged and less productive? One of the Bloomberg articles that I read in researching the book attempted to correlate the drop in productivity with a forced return to work. So people were so pissed off about having to get on a train or battle traffic for an hour and a half that when they got to the office, they were grumpy. 
So again, it's tough to say that if you do this, then that will happen. The world just isn't that simple. There are lots of different forces. But I do believe that all else being equal, and maybe it never is, that the worker who can work remotely two or three days a week will be more engaged than the worker who has to schlep in the office five days a week. What do you think? Uh, no, I, I agree. What goes through my head, and I don't know the answer to this because I, I deal with it myself. Like I work mostly remotely, but when I go to the office, it's you know one, two days a week maybe. And I get energy from being around people. Like it's just different staring at a screen on video calls and being connected 24 seven to the internet. It just doesn't feel great. And so I can see where like, that's where the mental health challenges come into play for a lot of people burnout. Cause you feel like you're just always, always on. I don't, I feel like that. And so I can see the balance of like being in person that would engage people a little bit more versus being fully remote all the time, but everybody's built differently. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with the work that companies like Cisco, LinkedIn, Marriott, and Amazon have done. My favorite anecdote from, I think it's chapter three of the book, if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on that, was with uh, Cisco spending millions of dollars transforming their Manhattan office. So they've got sensors everywhere. They, they try to respect privacy, but there's definitely a little bit of a creepy factor. And prior to the pandemic, Brandon, 70% of that office space was dedicated to cubicles, individual workstations, whatever, they inverted it, right? 30% now. Their philosophy is if you're coming in to check email or code or write or do mostly individual work, stay home. We don't want you here. But to your point, it is easier many times if you and I can just tap each other on the shoulder or we're not relying on Zoom with potential latency issues, even though Zoom held up remarkably well over the pandemic. So I do think that business travel will need to be more purposeful and that poses all sorts of challenges to operations folks, HR folks, real estate folks. I mean, again, you're absolutely right. Not only could you write a book about each chapter, you could write many books, you know, whether it's blockchain or remote work or um, immersive technologies like AR and VR. One of my favorite memes that I always see floating around the internet is it's like the job posting of like, come join our fast paced work environment. It's engaging. And, and then it's like a picture of this like empty cubicle. And that's what we're dealing with. Like, why would you want to come in and check email? And if you're not going to engage with other people and do collaborative stuff, like stay home. It makes sense. I think people want the flexibility. Right. But I might say I want the flexibility to work exclusively remotely, but that might impact my colleagues. In fact, it probably does because let's say I'm in a different time zone and, and we see people who's, you know, I, I would argue that tools like Slack, Microsoft Teams and Zoom are inherently more collaborative. But if I'm sending seven or eight messages to you and you're sending seven, eight back and we just don't get it, long ago, we should have got on the phone or on a video call or yeah. each other on the office in person. All right, let's just figure this out because clearly we're not communicating. So if you look at the data, um, there's an outfit called WFH Research with um, Stanford professor Nicholas Bloom basically as the head of it. And they've been tracking remote days in the office, I think, pretty much since the pandemic started. And it seems like we're ultimately going to land at a macro level on three days in the office and two days at home. Again, it's going to vary. I'm working with a law firm now, one of my clients, and my primary contact is in the office five days a week. And that's the way it is, and so be it. But there are lots of differences. Texas, I know, for whatever reason, has a higher office occupancy rate than places like San Francisco because tech workers for a long time have understood the importance of working remotely in tools like Slack and going back in the day, Yammer. So I don't have all the answers, but hopefully I ask a number of questions because 
I'm proud of the fact that this isn't a tactical book. I don't think it's 30,000 feet, but if you're looking for the chapter in which your 37 person startup based in Holland, there are specific policies that keep looking. I don't think you could write a book that attempts to provide that level of guidance because there are just so many differences, but I would argue that these trends are immutable. And if anything, they're only going to intensify. Agreed. So we're recording this in May and it's mental health awareness month. People are saying they're burned out. We're talking about mental health more than probably ever. What is driving all of this? Oh, lots of things. The numbers are amazing to me. I came across a stat. It's in the book. I think it was a SHRM study. Don't quote me on that. Something like 76% of workers experienced some degree of burnout. And when I read that, my natural reaction was, who the hell are these other 24? Um, so it's a lot of things, right? It's the fact that, and I could rant on this all day long. So a number of my books are about collaboration and different tools. I wrote both Slack and Zoom for dummies. So some of it is not being able to find basic stuff. Asana, the project management company, ran a survey slash report a few years ago called the Anatomy of Work. And I think they subsequently updated it. But I remember one stat from it, something like 37% of the time, employees were working on work. What does that mean? It means I'm trying to schedule time with you and we're going back and forth with messages. We're not using a tool like Calendly. We are trying to find documents because you use Zoom and I use Teams or you use Teams and I use Slack. And oh, what about email? Oh, wait, we use text for that or it's in Notion or another one of these no-code, low-code tools. So some of it's finding that. Some of it is also about what I'll call collaboration kabuki theater, right? We don't want to appear to be slacking if we're working from home, especially as the return to work has become more popular. So do we respond to that message at 9.30 p.m.? Because we want to effectively raise our hand and go, ooh, ooh I'm working, notice me. But part of it's proximity bias. How do I, as a manager effectively evaluate folks when I can't see them. According to Sherm, something like 72% of managers wanted everyone back in the office full-time. Well, why? When they've been objectively as if not more productive working from home. It's a trust issue, right? They don't want to feel like they can't see what's going on. And why do we need you if your employees are being productive without you? So I'm not an expert on the subject. I just know that it is very real and it's certainly one of the factors driving the great resignation. And then when you factor in the fact that remote and hybrid work have become more prevalent, the tools have become more powerful, you know, broadband is not an anomaly like it was 25 years ago. You've got people now, Brandon, as you know, who can switch jobs without having to sell their home and find new schools for their kids. So there are lots of different reasons. I might even be missing a few, but it's, it's not as simple as just one thing. So what you just said leads me to talking about the the imbalance of the labor market that you described in your book. What did you mean by that? And what challenges are employers going to see as a result of this imbalance? For a long time, things have been out of whack. When this book went to print, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Brandon, there were 1.7 job openings for every person. And remember that the unemployment rate does not count people who aren't looking for work. And something like 10% of males aged 25 to 54, I know I'm going to sound like Rain Man here, have effectively stopped looking for work, right? They're day trading, they're living with their parents, they're living off savings, whatever. If you look at the decline in birth rate, not just in the United States, but other industrialized countries like Japan and France, we're not making people as quickly as we used to. And some of that's college debt. You've got immigration challenges. I think construction workers alone in the US, there's a shortage of about 500,000. Now, I don't want to get into a whole political argument. The point is that there are structural things in the economy that don't get fixed overnight. Now, could generative AI and automation alleviate that concern? 100%. 
But it's interesting to me, as I did the research, um, there's this thing called Solal's paradox. And effectively, tools like the internet or smartphones that should make us more productive in some case don't or make us less productive because we're wasting time. So this notion that even though, yes, ChatGPT and some of the other generative AI tools are pretty cool, I don't see how they supplant all these workers immediately. And we can unpack that if you want. There are all sorts of legal issues and trust issues, security issues, not to mention quality issues and truth issues. But I, again, just think that there are a lot of things going on and I don't see how the labor market gets looser in the next six months. I could be wrong. But when we hear about these layoffs from Meta and Microsoft, they make a lot of news and for good reason. But if you look at the data, most of the layoffs are really confined to the technology sector. There was a really interesting article I read, I think it was on Vox from uh, Rani Mala a couple of months ago about how she interviewed a Facebook employee said, I did nothing for a year. They hired me because they figure, and she was making something like 200 grand a year. And because, again, inflation was so low and interest rates were so low, companies could say, you know what, we'll find a job for you later, but you're really talented. We don't want you going to insert name of competitor. So, yeah, the labor market is fascinating to me. I I don't know if we've ever lived through something like this. It's just incredibly tight. And then when you think about empowered employees and the ability to work remotely, and if you don't have a bond with your manager, if you can get 10% more, and you're millennial and you've got $150,000 in college debt, why not? And you don't have to move. I mean, I'd sign up for that. What's interesting is before we start recording, you were talking about how like all these tectonic forces, a lot of them connect. And the the imbalance in the labor market plus employee dispersion plus the inflation, those are all really connected if you think about it. Because like the fact that I can now work for a company across the country from me, different time zone, I might be able to get more money because of inflationary factors and I need to do what's best for myself. And now you have technology and tools that help me be better at my job. Like there's just so many connected pieces to this that it's like not one answer. Yeah, there really are. Um, Do you remember back in school studying um, compensating wage differentials? No. That's just a fancy way of saying that if you're a coal miner, you're risking your life. And you're going to make more money than if you're a Wendy's short order cook. And that same principle compensating wage differential applies to location. So to state the obvious, if you live in Gilbert, Arizona, like I do, it's pretty affordable. I was watching a video on YouTube a couple of days ago about someone who was paying $1,100 a month for, wait for it, a 75 square foot apartment without a bathroom in Manhattan. I mean, for some people, that's their mortgage or more than their mortgage. So what happens when a company like Zillow, and this actually did happen about 18 months ago, don't quote me on the date, said, we are going to pay people irrespective of where they live. So if your job is an account manager, let's say it's $130,000, I don't care if you live in Timbuktu or San Francisco or Idaho. So what happens when companies do that? I mean, that is one of the core tenets of economic orthodoxy, right? Where you live, to some extent, drives how much you make. Well, what if you remove that? So when companies say, yeah, I don't know about remote work, okay, fine, but can you spend less on real estate? Check. Can you search from a wider pool of talent? Check. Uh, So I don't think that you could dismiss these forces, even if your inclination to say, I don't know about this AI, or I don't know about having a fractional chief executive. I was just really intrigued about all these possibilities and, and to your point, the interrelationship among them. So I'm really curious to see how this plays out. There's a reason that this is book number four for me in my series on the future work. I just think it's fascinating. 
all of these different elements, whether it's collaboration or project management or no code and low code tools or some of these macroeconomic forces that are right about in the nine. Let's talk about generative AI. You already touched on a little bit. I'm just fascinated by it because I, I haven't had this sort of reaction to a, a technology in, in a long time. I just remember having that emotional feeling of when I started using it for my job and I'm like, the possibilities with this thing are endless. But I also see, like I see the, the good side, but I also see some dark sides to this. Give me your perspective on it. How are employers, workplaces, employees going to be using generative AI? I think it's going to depend on the workplace. Uh, certainly, there are some companies that are going to embrace it with open arms. And we've seen, I was blogging about this a couple of weeks ago, I guess there was one CEO took a lot of grief for praising an employee for getting rid of the family dog because they had to go back to the office. And we often make sacrifices and you just shake your head and go, dude, could you be more tone deaf? Probably not. But the, the CEO is making the point that if employees are using these tools to generate code or to generate copy or analyze data, I know you mentioned that in your one of your previous podcasts, throwing in a bunch of survey data, can it make us more productive? Sure, possibly. But then the CEO solution was to increase everyone's workload by 30 or 50 times. Good luck with that. Some companies are banning it. Chase and Verizon or two that have said, yeah, we're not using these tools because of privacy concerns or because you're effectively training a model. And, and we're seeing this with things like the writer strike or what the record companies are doing when that Drake song dropped on Spotify, the AI version of it, right? So this is very much an existential threat. Now, if you look at it historically, there's this uh, Austrian economist, Joseph Schumpeter, who coined a phrase, creative destruction, basically a new technology create certain jobs, but in the process destroys others. So go back to the launch of the web around 1994, 1995. The internet had been around for about 23 years, but I remember using Bolton boards and primitive collaboration tools like Internet Relay Chat or IRC. Basically think of it as a scaled down version of Slack or, or Microsoft Teams. If you were a travel agent in 1993, probably made a decent living. Well, with their sites like Expedia and Travelocity, I don't need to do that. And then if you throw in chat GPT and those sites are absolutely looking on integrating them. So the plugin factor, I think, is fascinating to me. Yes, it's fine to go to Dolly to generate images or chat GPT to generate texts or summaries, or you can even do visualizations or code for websites. It's pretty cool. Or Microsoft Copilot, but it creates other jobs. So in the case of the web, oh, we need an SEO expert. We need a web designer. So I don't know how all this plays out. And I think in their previous pod or one of them, you mentioned prompt engineers, right? I was reading on Business Insider that you can make $350,000 a year, even if you don't have a background in coding, because you know how to ask really good questions. So I, I don't know how all this plays out. To me, it is irresponsible of management to dismiss these outright, because I do think they can do some things really well. I would argue, though, that it's equally irresponsible to say, okay, we don't need employees anymore. But in the automation, which is kind of a cousin, as you know, of generative AI, in Fort Worth, Texas, you've got a robot McDonald's, zero employees. I, again, these are just all fascinating and interrelated forces. But when I tried to do the bibliography for the nine, I, I used ChatGPT and it completely screwed it up. And I said, all right, I'm glad that I'm not using this. The only time I used ChatGPT in the book was to have it define itself. And I actually put that in chapter, I think it's four or five of the book. But I would argue that you're using a large language model trained on the web. Now, can you create other large language models? Can you point it at a Slack workspace? Yes. And you'd learn more about how your organization communicates. Or if I'm sending a message to Brandon and it's 400 characters long, could a tool like ChatGPT say, you may want to 
stop because he's never going to read this. Or he only responds to these messages once a week if you're lucky. So you may want to pick up the phone and call him or schedule a meeting. So the potential of these tools is amazing, but also the downside is flat out scary. That's why I do think that tools like blockchain that prove the provenance of something, particularly with respect to deep fakes, it's essential. Many people don't realize that they're already using blockchain, whether or not they trade cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. The example that I use in the book is with HelloSign, which I think Dropbox rebranded as Dropbox Sign. They actually use blockchain technology to say, let's say that you and I are working together. I send you a contract. It can tell me that you open it up on this date, on this device, at this time, from this IP address, and I can prove that. That's legally binding. It's inalterable. I think it's going to be essential to get our arms around those tools when people can create images and videos and text or code and say, oh yeah, I did that. Right. Actually, I have an example. I don't think I shared this on the last pod about generative AI, but I went to high school with somebody who ended up becoming a creative director for a very large uh, video game brand and just a super talented artist. He made a post the other day that was saying that he's been looking for a creative director job and he's being met with, "Mm, we're good, we're using mid-journey to generate original art. But I'm like, is it original? Like it's it's using basically the, the entire database of art and it's like mishmashing it together. And this is where the prompt engineering comes into play of like, do we now need to have somebody as talented as him be a prompt engineer to output whatever art i just i'm i'm trying to wrap my head around this oh it, it's fascinating to me so i don't know if you watched last week tonight with john oliver on hbo or i guess as of today it's now max i think they, they rebranded but that's a different discussion anyway um he did a show i want to say january of this year on generative ai and one of the segments showed how i think it was mid-journey or stability ai or one of these image generation tools was able to generate images, but in one of them, and he zoomed in on it, it had the watermark of, I think it was Getty Images. So that is a lawsuit waiting to happen. In fact, as I did the research for the book, I found that that not only individual artists, but stock image companies, throw in the streaming services of the record companies. So can you generate decent, or in some cases, flat out cool images using a tool like Midjourney? Sure. Legally though, is it yours? I mean, Disney, for example, as flat out said, if you use any of your IP in any form without permission, we will sue you. So that's why to me, getting back to the fractional chapter for a minute, it might make sense to go, look, we can't afford a full-time in-house counsel as a 300-person company, but there are a lot of AI issues here. So maybe we need someone three days a week that we can rely upon. So again, these are all interrelated, but if you want to be certain that you can use it, then you may want to commission an artist or purchase an image from one of these sites and read the terms of service, which of course no one ever does. But if you are using one of these tools to create an image, are you inadvertently violating an artist's rights and could you be liable? The answer is yes. I've yet to use any images from any of those tools yet. I've done like ChatGPT and use copy, like usually summarizing my own content that I've created because it speeds up the workflow, but I am scared to use the the image generated. I just out of fear that it's plagiarism of some sort. You're copying somebody else's existing work that's copyrighted. Yeah. So whether or not you're going to play offense or defense, smarter people than myself have said, if you're an attorney and you focus on intellectual property and AI, you're, you're going to be set for a while. Let's talk about blockchain because I, for the longest time, had just sort of ignored it. I've, it's always been out there for me, but I'm like, eh, is it really going to impact my life right now? You brought some examples, like you just mentioned, like the contract signing where blockchain is actually being used. Give 
listeners a brief overview. You did it really good in the book. And I actually read that chapter twice because I was like, okay, you're simplifying this more like better than really anybody has for me. So I read it and just give listeners some perspective. What's blockchain? How might we use it in the workplace? Yeah, think of it as a distributed ledger. And whether you're an accountant or, or do your own books for business or you just want to keep a spreadsheet of things, basically an immutable record of everything that's happened. That's why every edition would be a block. So the example that I mentioned with digital signing tools is a particularly interesting one to me, but it's not limited there. You know, what's the stop? Say you work in supply chain and you've got a bunch of widgets or whatever. Why couldn't you assign to each widget some sort of tracking number? And if there were a problem, you could say, okay, it came from this batch. Or let's say that you're socially or environmentally conscious and you want to buy your coffee from ethically sourced beans manufacturers. Okay, well, where do your beans come from when you go to the supermarket and buy a bag of Starbucks coffee or Ralph's or actually not Ralph's Pete's? There you go. I don't know. Well, if there were a QR code on that, you could bring it up and say, well, actually, these beans were born or harvested in Colombia and made its way through here and didn't involve any child labor. You know, would you pay more for that? Well, according to the survey data that I cite in the book, a lot of people would. They wouldn't pay seven times as much. But would they pay 20% more knowing that it didn't come from child labor? The answer is yes. So there are all sorts of applications of this technology. But unfortunately, many people conflate Bitcoin with cryptocurrency. And to be fair, when Satoshi Nakamura put out his white paper introducing Bitcoin to the world in 2008 amidst the financial crisis, he actually doesn't use the term Bitcoin, but he talks about, I'm sorry, blockchain, but he does use terms that imply that this type of thing is coming. So to me, it's fascinating and it can do so much more than just support cryptocurrencies and particularly in an era of deep fakes and generative AI, proving that something actually happened at the risk of getting all black mirror, I think is going to be essential. I mean, you use the example of, let's say your friend going for a creative director and let's say that he or she got through the process and didn't receive an offer and got ticked off and then created a fake image of the company and put it on social media. So um, Adobe and Microsoft, to, to counter deepfakes, are working on basically a verification technology predicated on blockchain. And if you moused over online or on your phone or a computer, a video or an image, it would more or less say, Here, here's how this video or photo came to be. And I see that as essential in the workplace, because if you're actually not doing your work, then what are we doing? And we all had stories during the pandemic, how people were effectively working three jobs. There was one of my favorite stories is a guy who created an AI bot in Zoom that would just move around. And people thought he was just kind of quirky during videos. Well, he actually wasn't on the call, but he was doing these things. So to me, I don't see how you write a book about the forces affecting the workplace without including as far as I can tell, the best safeguard against complete chaos. And I'd argue that blockchain, it's not the be all and the end all, but I don't see how you get around using it. And I'd I'd rather know about it as a potential solution than not know because the dangers of generative AI, I think are so significant that if left unchecked, I mean, was it the head of AI at Google recently quit because he said, what the hell? Or um, was it uh, that guy, Gary Marcus again? Or just there are a lot of people who are coming out. Sam Altman's talking about it. I mean, he's in charge of open AI, right? And he's also saying like, well, government might need to get involved. And I'm usually never one to say like, oh, government should get involved in everything. But this is moving so fast. Yeah, I mean, I again, I, I don't have all the answers, but as a potential solution to chaos in the workplace and people, I mean, use your imagination. And if you can't do it now, you'll be able to do it soon. And you can absolutely write passable copy through 
chat GPT and you talk to college professors and high, high school teachers, right? They have no idea if the anti-plagiarism tools like Turnitin can check things. And even the verification tools might come back with, okay, we're 26% confident that this is AI generated. Well, good luck as a former college professor making that argument in front of an, an academic advisory committee or standards committee. So again, you could take any chapter in this book and blow it up into its own book, but I didn't want to get that much into the weeds. And hopefully I provided enough detail that people would start asking questions. And then whether it's engage me as a consultant or speaker or workshops or whatever, or just do some of their own research. I just, I did not see a book like this out there that covered these forces. And because ChatGPT had only dropped in November, I knew it was only a matter of time before a bunch would. In fact, you probably know this, Reed Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, wrote a book with GPT-4 listed as a co-author. I'm not making it up. I had not heard that. That's incredible. If anybody wants to go deep in this AI stuff, I'm actually listening to a book right now. It's called AI 2041 by Kai-Fu Lee. Incredible because it's like they paint these stories about what 2041 might look like with all these tools. They talk about like deep fake and the generative AI, but it puts it in a story format and then they unpack it. It's super fascinating. I highly recommend it because it does touch on like some of the solutions of like the deep fake and how do you verify? And cause I mean, when you start talking about like social media and the ability to make deep fakes and you don't know if it's real or not, you don't know what you're looking at without the like blockchain technology. I don't know how, what society is going to be like. Yeah, there's a show that I'm watching now on Peacock on a recommendation from a friend called The Capture that gets into something very similar. You know, what happens when there are identical deep fake videos out there of newscasters and politicians? I mean, it's not good. And, you know, to be fair with blockchain or that the technology that Adobe and Microsoft are working on, I think it's called um, creative attribution or creative credentials. Don't quote me on that. It's it's early. But you'd still want someone to actually mouse over the image or video. And unfortunately, people don't do that. There was a study that MIT dropped about three years ago that showed that fake news stories spread, I think it was six times faster than real ones. So again, just because you're using blockchain doesn't mean that bad things still can't happen. Of course they can. You have to read the label, so to speak. But at least it's there for the discerning viewer, whether or not the viewer actually looks at it as a, as a different discussion. But from my perspective, companies at least need to be aware of these things. If they want to ignore them, fine, I can't stop them. But yeah, these were to me the nine most important things that if I were running a company of any size, if I wanted to survive, I mean, chapter 10 gets into the different options. And yeah, if you're 58 years old and you want to ride out the next three or four years to you retire, okay, you could probably get away with that. But many companies and people won't be able to do that. So you might as well confront the, it's like being sick, right? You want to know sooner so you can get the treatment or have the surgery or change your diet versus, oh, I'm just not going to go to the doctor. Okay, well then I guess your problem will naturally go away. How'd that work out for Steve Jobs? Let's end the discussion with this last point. And I think it all kind of rolls up together with like all the technology and the stuff available. It's spitting out all sorts of data for us. And you wrote that we might have an unhealthy relationship with analytics and that when we measure something and it becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Unpack that statement for me and how should we be looking at the, the data that we're collecting in the analytics? Yeah, you're talking about Goodhart's Law. That's one of my favorites. So as a college professor, not exclusively, but to some extent, the non-tenured folks like me would get retained in part based on student evals. Well, that's easy enough to hack. I'll make my course so easy that my student evals rock. Well, that doesn't mean that students learned anything. It doesn't mean that their tuition dollars are well spent. And I would argue that if you are a bit of a pain in the ass as a professor, and I was, 
that's a good thing because I had professors when I was 19 who were a pain in the ass and forced me to work harder and didn't just say, oh, well, I, I overslept the class. Okay, here's another chance. You oversleep your job interview. Are you really going to get another chance? If I am a keynote speaker and I sleep late and don't show up at the event, are they going to call me back? Mm, probably not. So it is crazy to me. And by way of background, Brandon, I am pro-data. I wrote one of the first books on big data in 2013, The Big Ignore. I followed that up with a book about data viz, a book about analytics. So I am pro-data. But whether it's Goodhart's law or Campbell's law, which is kind of a cousin, you know, just because we quantify things doesn't mean that they're accurate and doesn't mean that they're true. It, it doesn't mean that they're effective. So just be careful if we say, well, we're going to hold employees accountable for productivity. Again, on Vox, Rami Mala wrote a really good article a couple of weeks ago about how there's this obsession with employee productivity, but we can't define it. Well, all right, we need you to be in the office three days a week. Okay, I can do that. Doesn't mean I'm doing much work in the office. I could be doing much less work in the office than I've at home. So this notion that analytics are this sort of holy grail, I think is absurd. And I use, just to make it a little bit more generalizable, the example of baseball in the book and how America's pastime has become borderline unwatchable exactly because people read Michael Lewis's book and they saw what the Oakland A's did and they started doing all sorts of crazy things which analytically were absolutely the right thing to do but then if you look at the ratings for baseball games they started to drop and, and yes some of that was pandemic related so now if you look at the rules that they've made in baseball are affected whether it's shift changes or pitch clocks they've shaved about 30 minutes off the game and People tend to like it because it's unreasonable to expect everyone to show up at a ball game for three and a half hours and you factor in parking and traffic and, you know, it's entertainment. So I just think very dangerous. Charlie um, Wanzel, I think I'm pronouncing that right, on The Atlantic had an interesting article a couple of days ago about the tendency to quantify everything, particularly when we're working remotely, we're using digital tools, right? It's not like if you and I have a conversation in the hallway in person, someone jots that down and said, Phil spoke 53% of the time. No, but if we're doing it in Slack or if we're doing it in Microsoft Teams or if we're doing Zoom calls, I mean, if you're using VR tools, like whether it's Oculus or Quest, or it lends itself more towards gamification and quantifying in data, which immortal Mark Twain, there are lies, damn lies in statistics. So I am pro data, but think about what you're measuring and you may not be measuring the right thing. Or if people know they're being measured, will they basically game the system? And the answer is they certainly can well, Phil, this has been a fascinating discussion. Honestly, I could probably have gone a couple hours on this, <laughs> but we, we ran out of time. But um, your book is The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. What do you want to say in parting? You want to point people to any, any of your work? I know you, you have a lot of books. so Yeah, I just hope that they check this one out. I, I think it's my best one. And you, know, you may not agree with everything, but it's pretty meticulously researched. There are lots of uh, graphs and stories. I, I like to think that it does strike a good balance between kind of macro and, and micro. But if you're looking for a tactical book, the seven things that you need to do right now to save your business, uh, you probably don't want to read this one because it is more conceptual, but it's not a listicle. I, I like to think that it's not the equivalent of Chinese food. Hopefully this is the kind of book that you pick up, put down, think about. And it actually makes me feel great, Brandon, that you read the, the blockchain chapter twice. I'd like to think there's a lot in there, not because it's dense or poorly written, but because this is so different than the way we think about things. So yeah, I, I hope that people will check it out. And I really appreciate your time. You stayed pretty neutral across the entire book. I'm curious if you're optimistic or if you're more fearful of the future. About any particular one or in general? Just in general, the future of work. 
it'll be interesting. What's it that, uh, is it a Chinese curse? I hope you live in interesting times. It depends on the force, right? I do think generally speaking, that worker empowerment is a good thing. If you look at US approval of labor unions, I think it's a 70%, which is a 50 year high. I'd argue that that's a long time coming. I think that the pendulum has been pretty much squarely on the side of employers for a long time. And that just isn't healthy. And that's why we're seeing the great resignation and quiet quitting and all these other things. People have had enough. I see the potential of fractional leadership in offices and the ability to take control of your lives with remote work and dispersion, even though it's challenging. But I also see, particularly with automation and generative AI, to me, an idea like Andrew Yang's universal basic income doesn't seem that crazy because what happens if we really go bananas with this and in five to 10 years, automation and generative AI mean that copywriters and restaurant workers and hotel workers and da, 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 are out of work. I mean, that seems like a, a pretty scary scenario. So I, I can't predict the future. I, I'd say it's a mix. I might. It depends on the day and the force and what I read in the news in the morning. But it's certainly interesting. But I, I'd say regardless of whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, I just think you have to be, to some extent, a realist. We can't pretend that the, the pandemic didn't happen. If it were two weeks or two months, okay, it was a snow day. But, you know, it's been now more than three years. And even though people are going back to work and certainly if you look at the occupancy rates in offices, they're they're higher than they had been, but they're nowhere near what they were pre-pandemic, certainly not in comparison to restaurants and concerts and airplane air travel. I mean, I was just on a flight from Montreal and once again, it was completely sold out. So I, I don't know if it'll be good or bad, but it'll certainly be interesting. My guest today has been Phil Simon. Phil, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brandon. I enjoyed it. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.